Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Natalie May. And today we're going to be talking about a problem which I think everybody will face in the emergency department at some point, certainly if you're involved in critical care and resuscitation, and that's the transfer of patients from the resus room to places like CT or the ICU when they're critically unwell. And a typical sort of situation would be the patient who has come in, they may have been disruptive after a head injury, we've given them an RSI, they're now nice and safe in the emergency department, but we need to get an early and fairly time-critical definitive investigation back, the CT scan in this case. So we need to prepare to move that patient from the recess room to CT and back safely, wisely, carefully, and with a degree of speed. So Natalie, this is something which you've had a lot of experience of recently because you've been working with a retrieval service in Sydney. Yeah, and I don't think it's something that I particularly thought maybe as much as I should have done about when I was working in the emergency department. And I can guarantee that having done a year of transferring patients all around uh, New South Wales, I'm going to think about these patients, even if it's just 10 metres down the corridor to CT scan in the same kind of way and really prepare. I think that time is really well spent and it can help you to avoid a lot of unpleasantness. I think there'll be a lot of people listening who will realise that when things go wrong on a corridor between the recess room and CT or in CT or on the way back, it's a thoroughly unpleasant experience and it's pretty risky for the patients as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the same goes if it's in the back of an ambulance or a helicopter or an aeroplane. I think there's definitely a moment where you think, I wish I'd just anticipated this a little bit better. So a bit of preparation and planning is what we're about here. And I've had some pretty bad experiences in the early phases of my career when things didn't go terribly well. For instance, I remember uh, transferring one critically ill patient um, to an intensive care unit. And as we were coming out of the vehicle, the pump with the noradrenaline came out and one of our ambulance crew at the time very helpfully pushed it back into the syringe driver and gave the patient a bolus of about five mils of noradrenaline, which is very good for your blood pressure. But not good for my blood pressure. We, both the patient and I were pretty hypertensive at that point. And fortunately, they were absolutely fine. But it was one of those examples that says that just very simple stuff can go horribly wrong really quickly. Absolutely. I learned very quickly that if you've got a young, relatively fit and healthy male patient with a, only a minor but fairly stimulating, painful injury, that propofol alone is not sufficient for sedation for a long time. And actually, you're going to really struggle to keep up with their requirements. Uh, so that was an uncomfortable transfer for me as well, as, as well as him. So I reckon if you ask anybody who's done this for a period of time, they'll have a story to tell you. So let's see if we can reduce the number of stories. We need a little bit of a system. And there are systems out there, there's things like the Star Course in the UK that can tell you a very, very structured way of getting people out of departments and from inter-hospital transfers. And I know Sydney Hems has something similar. I'm going to be talking today about the patients who are relatively straightforward, not the very complex ventilator-dependent, unintrope-dependent patient who, who may have been in your, in your ED for a long period of time. I'm talking about the relatively simple or apparently relatively simple patient who might catch you out. So let's work with something like that head injured patient who's come in, they've had their RSI, we're waiting to get them to CT scan, and we need a little system that we can use, little mental checklist to make sure that we're safe to go and it's going to go smoothly. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good idea. I think we probably need to think about the patient, we need to think about the problems that we might encounter, and then we need to think about the people, who's going to transfer this patient? Who is the person who's best trained, best equipped to deal with what might happen? Okay, so there are lots of systems out there. We'll go for three Ps. So let's think with the patient for starters. I think when I'm considering transferring the patient, the first thing is, is this patient actually fit to transfer? 
So are they physically capable of getting from where I am now to where I need to go? Or is there an immediate need for something which needs to be done in terms of resuscitation before they are safe to go? The problem we have at the moment, or in fact the opportunity, is that we're now much better at transferring patients who have ongoing resuscitation needs. So the, the bad old days when we used to keep people for hours before they were stable enough to transfer, I think have gone. We're, we're much more capable and accepting that some patients will have ongoing resuscitation as they move to the CT scanner to get their defensive diagnosis. I'm thinking mostly about the major trauma patients here. So although there's a sense of urgency for those patients, at some point we need to make a decision that resuscitation has to go on hold to an extent so we can take this patient and find out what's going to happen next. And that's a a balancing decision that probably needs to be made by a senior decision maker in the ED. Okay, so we've got our patients with, in this case, we've got a fairly stable patient, so it's easy. But there are certain things that we need to think about in terms of the patient and moving. So I think it's really important with something we've talked about on the podcast here before, is that we manage things like the sedation and the analgesia and the paralysis, perhaps, with these patients very carefully before we consider moving. So what are your thoughts about sedation, analgesia and paralysis for these patients? The approach that I've adopted in the last 12 months is to... It's based on the fact that what's adequate sedation for keeping somebody comfortable in an ED stretcher is not the same as the sedation required to move somebody off the stretcher. So I'll quite often turn up and find someone very nicely relaxed. They seem to be GCS3 and then you do anything at all to them and then they're reaching for their tube. So my first step is to turn the sedation up. You want your patient really nicely, deeply sedated. And only once they are deeply sedated, are you going to consider paralysis. I've got a, quite a low threshold for paralyzing patients to move them. I think if there's any risk that they're going to struggle either to synchronize their uh, res- respiration with the ventilator or they're going to try to escape off the bed, you don't want either of those things to happen. So paralysis will help you with that. But I'll reiterate again that you need to be sedating them really deeply before you do that because patients who are paralyzed but not sedated, that's not a place we want to go. It's not very kind. And along with that, I think the need to give these patients adequate analgesia is really important because that's another stimulus that the patient may well experience, particularly if they've got injuries when you start moving them. They'll get that sudden stimulus to move. And if you don't have good quality of analgesia on board, you will run into trouble. We recommend a fentanyl infusion or an alfentanyl infusion or a remifentanyl infusion to continue for these patients and not just rely on propofol to get your patient round. And I think propofol on its own without paralysis and without analgesia is a bit of a recipe for, for disaster, really. Yeah, we've struggled to run propofol at a rate that suits patients who are particularly who are young and healthy, who tend to be the trauma patients that we see and need to intubate. And we, we actually use a lot of um, midazolam along with fentanyl or morphine as our infusions, uh, just simply because you can manage bigger doses at lower rates and, and we have problems with the amount of uh, infusion that we can run. Uh, but think about it and get, get some advice, get some from your local anaesthetic and ICU teams about how you can facilitate that if that's not something you can you're familiar with. So paralysis is a bit controversial. There are some patients who you could very easily argue that you don't want to paralyzed. So patients who you may have intubated for things like status epilepticus, you actually don't want to do that if you can avoid it. And so there is a risk balance here that you need to consider. If I paralyze the patient, there are protective 
elements to that because the patient isn't going to wake up and pull the tube out. The disadvantage is they may have awareness and that is an issue for ED patients. I don't think we talk about that enough. They may have awareness when you stimulate them and they wake up, but similarly, they may actually extubate or pull their lines out. And that can be a bit of a disaster. And again, that's most likely to happen when you stimulate the patient. And interestingly, this is a really important point. That doesn't happen when you leave the ED. It happens when you arrive at the other end. So the big stimulus to the patient is when you move them off the bed, usually. Now, if you think about it, we normally go on our own trolley. So that happens at the other end. And this is a key point that you have to try and predict the level of stimulus and the requirements for what's going to happen when you get there, not what's actually happening now. Yeah, one of the things I found quite useful is to suction down the ET tube before we move the patient off the bed, because actually that's quite stimulating. It's often necessary and helpful and useful for the patient, but it gives me a bit of a measure of how sedated that patient is. So if that makes them start coughing, well, I know that they're going to need some more sedation before we try to move them. Excellent. So we've thought about the patient, we've optimised them, get them on their good quality sedation plus or minus paralysis, I must admit, I tend to paralyze them um, when we're going around unless there's a really good reason why not to. In terms of managing their equipment, they're often attached to infusion pumps, they've got a ventilator, they'll have some bloods going, may or may not have an arterial line in. How do you manage that sort of kit around the patient? I tend to take an approach to think about what might happen. There's three elements to that. What's going to happen if your transfer takes a lot longer than you've anticipated? What's going to happen if your patient gets sicker than they are now? And what's going to happen if, God forbid, they try to extubate themselves? So those are the kind of three eventualities I'm planning for. So in terms of thinking about the time, that really feeds in usually to the amount of drugs you've got available. So you want to have plenty in your infusion pumps. We tend to take extra syringes full of drugs with us so that we can change them out if we need to. There's a law that I can't remember. I think it's Hofstadter's law, which is things will always take longer than you think they're going to, even if you take account of Hofstadter's law. Um, that's a hundred percent designed for retrieval medicine. In fact, it's on the board in our Wollongong base at the moment. Um, so we, we, I'd like to have, if the, if I, I ask about how long the transfer is going to take for our inter-hospital jobs, I usually multiply it by two and then add a bit. So make sure I've got plenty of drugs available. And the same thing is true of oxygen. You don't want to run out of oxygen, particularly if you've got a ventilator that is running on oxygen. And in most places, uh, when you go to CT scan, you'll be able to connect your, your oxygen tubing up to the wall supply of oxygen and run your ventilator off that. But not always. And I have been on transfers where we've been sitting outside CT because there's another patient in there and you've got your ventilated patient. And suddenly that little cylinder that was going to last for ages doesn't seem so full and so plentiful anymore. So there's a little bit there about predicting the problems, which we'll come on to about what could possibly go wrong. In terms of the equipment around the patient, so actually packaging the patient ready to go, then with all of these pumps and stuff, where are you putting them and how are you preparing for your move? So I think it's helpful to have everything as simple as possible before you leave the space you're in. So you want to have all of your drip stands and everything the patient's attached to removed before you go. You don't want to be taking all sorts of sticks and bits sticking out of the bed. Get rid of drugs that you don't need to be giving at the moment, like heparin infusions, for example. Sometimes we turn up and patient, patients are on those. They can manage without that for you know half an hour, an hour or so. Get rid of the non-essential stuff. And then what you've got left, try to contain that within the bed space. So when you're moving the patient, everything comes with them. So that might mean that the infusion pumps need to sit between their knees or their legs. Their catheter bag will need to go between their legs as well. Uh, NG tube, you don't want the bag dangling off the end. So disconnect the drainage bag, spigot the end of it, get it all tucked in and, and as neat and tidy as you can before you leave. Because all the time outside of the emergency department, you want to be minimized as much as possible. 
So I, th- I like the idea of making everything linear. So I try and put everything in the, the center space of the patient. And that area between the legs is just, you know, fantastic between the knees going down um, to their ankles. You can get a couple of infusion pumps in there. You can often get the monitor in there. I turn as many infusions off as I can. So I don't want to air to sneak into the infusions if they're laid down flat. I try and take the minimum amount of kit round as I can. In terms of ventilators for the patients we're talking about, I try and use a very, very basic ventilator. We've got three or four different ventilators in my emergency department. I like for transfers for this kind of patient, a very simple oxylog, which is effectively just squeezing a bag. Yeah. And we don't use anything more complicated than an oxylog 3000 plus in our service. And sometimes we use the oxylog 2000. And they're small enough to actually fit with the patient. And it means that you're not having to wheel another set of kits down the corridor. So if you can package a patient linear, almost so they can be sort of wrapped up in one sheet with all the equipment actually there, it's very much easier to package. And the principle we're working to here is we're again thinking about what it's going to be like at the other end. So we're packaging as if we were by the bed in the CT scanner, ready to move. And that's the point where we actually leave the ED ready so that when we get to the other end, which is the risky end, we're already prepped to move. Yeah. Think about it as time outside of the emergency department is your at-risk time. Everything that you can do before you leave to reduce that time down is time well spent. Excellent. So that's the patient. Package them carefully. Think about the future. What about problems? I always try and simulate in my head what could go wrong with this patient and what am I going to do about it? I sort of mentioned before thinking about what happens if it's going to take longer than you anticipate? What happens if the patient suddenly gets sicker, if they stop ventilating, if their blood pressure drops, if their heart rate goes up? And then what happens if in a sort of separate box, they extubate themselves and you lose that airway? So you need to have a sort of plan for each of those eventualities. Okay, so extubation is a particular concern. We're going to mitigate it with the preparation of the patient, but we need to take enough equipment and drugs such that if that happens, we can redo it. But more than just the intubation, we need to be able to ventilate the patient because oxygenation is more important than intubation. You know, do you have a self-inflating bag with an oxygen source and an, you know, just an oral airway? So if it all goes completely wrong, can you just bag valve mask the patient? And I see people leave sometimes trying to leave with just a water circuit, which of course is dependent on a gas supply, or I see them leaving without anything. And I think, gosh, that's brave. In other words, not wise. Yeah. I mean, we, again, in our service, we carry a, what we call our drop down airway kit, which contains ET tubes, laryngoscope, uh, it contains oropharyngeal airways, it contains LMAs, it's got a bag valve mask in it, and it has nasopharyngeal airways. It's got all the really simple, basic airway kit that you might want. And most emergency departments have got some sort of transfer bag. If you don't know what's in yours, I'd suggest before you actually need to use it, it's worth going and having a look. <laughs> Open it up and see what's in there because it probably contains much of the same sort of stuff. But you want to have some familiarity with what's available to you before you go rather than just either assume it's in the bag or take everything in the emergency department, which is also impractical. Yeah, one of the things I found interesting is I've gone into some places and they've got the transfer bag and it's got one of those seals on so that somebody's checked it and then they put a seal on the top so that they know that it's been checked so they know what's in it. And I've gone, okay, we're going on a transfer. I'm going to open this and go, don't open it. Don't open it because then I've got to recheck it. And I go, yeah, okay, whatever. And just open it anyway, nicely. Because if you're not familiar with what's in the bag, well, you've got to be. You've just got to be before you leave. You need to know what you can put your hands on and quickly. Part of team training. We can do that through simulation as well. In terms of prediction, now there's some stuff which you can just generically predict, like the extubation thing is an issue for every patient who's going to be leaving and intubated. But 
I also like the idea of trying to simulate what could happen with this individual patient. So for instance, if we've got somebody who I suspect might have a pneumothorax, but I've not diagnosed it in the ED for whatever reason, but I think it's a possibility, I will make sure that I've got the kit and I'm mentally prepared for if this patient goes off and their airway pressures go really high and I can't hear anything on the chest, have I got the scalpel to hand to do the thoracostomy as an example? Or if the patient's bleeding, have I got enough blood? Or if the patient's got, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It's about sharing your mental model with the team. I think that really helps everybody get onto the same page. If you say before you leave the department, okay, we're going to go to CT scan to scan their head. I'm concerned that there might be a pneumothorax. We're not going to do anything with that at the moment, but should things deteriorate while we're away, this is what we're going to do. Should the patient have a traumatic cardiac arrest, we're going to and then you can allocate roles as you need to just have everybody prepared on the same page because that's a scary time for you and having your team back up is as valuable as anything else. So simulate in your head what could happen and then share it with the team. Great advice. In terms of other things that you want to take with you, so we talked about a little bit about backup kit, we talked about the emergency kit, we talked about enough oxygen and where to get additional oxygen from. Any other problems that can occur? Well, it's important before you go to know that they're ready for you at the other end. So just as you would in a pre-hospital environment, you'd phone ahead, make sure the hospital knows you're coming, know what's the nature of the patient's problem is. If you're going to CT, you want to ring before you leave the department and say, we're leaving now, we're going to be with you in this amount of time. This patient's sick and we don't want to be waiting around. And let, let them tell you if there's going to be a problem in advance so you can hang on where you are rather than leave and be stuck on a corridor. There's nothing worse than that. And of course, there may be the occasions where actually the route may have changed. Um, if building work is going on in your department, it does happen and you need to make sure that you actually know where you're going. In my department, we have different CT scanners around the hospital and occasionally one of them's down. We actually have to transfer a very long way down to the children's to do the adult CTs or vice versa. And knowing your route, if it's an unfamiliar one, is very important. Always be, wa- be very, very wary of lifts. <laughs> Just, yeah, definitely. Again, don't get stuck in the lift. If you ask enough people, then I swear virtually everybody who's done a lot of this will have had a lift experience and they're very rarely a positive one, I've got to say. Okay, so that's patient. We talked about problems and predicting those problems and preparing for our predicted problems. Great, lots of peace. Another one, the people. And we've put the people at the end here for a reason, because the selection of who's going to take the patient, it's kind of dependent on the patient and the problems that we predict. Yeah, I've, I've certainly done transfers as a an ST2, I think, in intensive care. I've taken patients across a hospital for an MR scan. And now, having taken them substantially further distances with a lot more training and a lot more experience, I think, wow, I, I'm very lucky that nothing <laughs> went wrong there. I think... It can be really easy to send somebody who's not all that experienced and familiar because they have a particular core set of skills. But really, you want somebody to be with that patient who can deal with every eventuality. And that tends to be quite a senior person. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be the only person there. You might send your very experienced registrar. Um, but if you can spare the most senior person in your department, it's a good opportunity for them to be around. Yeah, I'm kind of paranoid about this. So I do think it's part of the training that we do in the emergency department to facilitate people to learn these skills. So I will often task one of my senior registrars to take the patient, to prepare them, and I'll check them before they go. I'll then let them leave. But I will typically, if I can, certainly follow them a very short time later and then supervise them, even if it's from inside the CT control room where I can see what's going on to make sure that the transfer of the patient works. 
Yeah, it's a great opportunity for some workplace-based assessments as well. You can take them off for safe transfer. Yay! So I just want to have another quick think about when we're in that CT room. So what I'm doing in there when I'm watching the patient arrive on our trolley and then moving them across, because that's the kind of final moment where things can go a little bit hairy. So we've packaged our patient nicely. We've got everything in the mid um, part of the patient. Got the monitors between the knees, etc. We've got them there by the side of the bed, and we're going to move them across. Now, I've seen that done in various different ways, and I have my own way of doing it. I'm interested in how you facilitate that final move, both onto the CT table or onto the IT bed or off the off CT table. Do you have a system? Yes, to a degree. Um, I tend to be the person who's looking after the airway. So as soon as we're in that space, my one of my hands, and it's usually my left hand, is on the ET tube. So I'm holding that ET tube in place with one hand, basically, as soon as the trolley gets to the side of whichever bed we're going on to. And I don't move from that position. Um, and everything kind of, I make sure everything kind of happens around me. And that means that I, I know that that tube's okay. Because to me, that tube is the thing that I want to be taking care of. It'll usually be that the other people on the team are getting the pat slide, preparing everything else. And again, the move is the very last thing that happens. We've usually changed the ventilator over to the wall oxygen before we've moved the patient. And I really like to, some people like to disconnect from the ventilator when they move. I really don't like that. I think that's another risk that we can add in that we don't need to do. Uh, I think if we can move carefully, and I like to do our halfway move so uh, I don't know, there's been some recent conversation about the instructions you give before you move. I'm a ready, steady move kind of person, um, and, but I'm very clear about we're going to I'm going to give you a ready, steady. Then we're going to move on move. What I'd like us to do is go halfway. If I say stop at any point, we stop exactly where we are. Um, and you can always if you've got the hand on the tube, you can feel the tension on the tube. And it's usually just a halfway check. So I'll, I'll say ready, steady, move to halfway. And then I'll say and again, ready, steady, move. And we'll move straight on to the rest of the way if everything is OK. So standing at the head end of the bed naturally lets you take control of the situation you control the et tube which is that big worry about when the patient moves look at the lead lengths so you know how much length have you got on the co2 probe how much you've got on the et tube how much you've got on the monitors and stuff like that and you'll often find that there are differential lengths in between these devices so again in my department the co2 lead for some reason the one thing which is attached to the et tube is really short and so that's the one that we have to worry about so again, we'll just make sure there's slack in the system so that the leads can move and the patient will be able to move. I like your idea about going halfway, like the idea about controlling the ET tube. Sometimes I will disconnect patients. I think I'm doing that less and less. I did it in the early stages of my career because it was taught all the time. But again, it's not ideal to do. And there's always the worry that if you disconnect, then you won't remember to reconnect. Clearly, you should have CO2 alarms and things, but there is a possibility you're introducing a potential other problem. So... As long as you're thinking about it, I don't mind which you do, but be careful. Yeah, so that's the final stage of all of this process to transfer the patient. And that last little bit of preparation really makes a big difference. Okay, so then our patient will get our CT scan. And essentially, when we're coming back to ED from CT scan, the situation is reversed. Yeah, with a little bit less urgency, once you're back in the ED, you can move all of your uh, infusions back onto drip stands, hopefully relatively slowly uh, and with a bit more bit more care and a bit more thought uh you can get everything set up exactly as you were and then be ready for the next move whatever that might be okay so let's just come to some summaries so talking about the relatively straightforward patient i think we could have a different discussion about the very complex patient who has particular ventilator requirements or is 
dependent on inotropes. I think that is a slightly different case, and that's more akin to a formalized ICU transfer. For those patients we're getting out of the ED, we can't be complacent. It looks simple. We've done it lots of times before. We think it's going to be okay, but we do need to have a little system. We talked about optimizing the patient, packaging the patient, positioning the patient, thinking about things like sedation, analgesia, paralysis. We then talked about problems. Yeah, we talked about what would happen if it takes longer than you expect, what happens if the patient condition changes, what happens if they extubate themselves, and how you're going to plan for those eventualities and mentally model them and share that with your team. And then we talked about the people. So we talked about the people at both ends of the situation. So preparing the group that we're going to, making sure they know we're coming, and selecting the transfer team based on the patient and the potential problems that could have come together. So that gives us a little system that we can run through. And that's what I mentally run through with my team before we leave the ED. And particularly when I'm asking somebody else to do the transfer. So if you're the sort of person who's doing your transfers in the ED, have a think about these things and please, you know, get in touch with the blog, get in touch with the podcast and give us your ideas. Things like checklists, which I know you use out in Sydney. Yeah, we have a, a an A to H checklist for our pre-hospital jobs, but it's easily adaptable to uh, moving anywhere and the things you need to think about for your patient before you go. So I'll put that into the accompanying blog post. Excellent. But whatever it is, have a system, be safe, enjoy your emergency medicine and have a great time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.